I'm Chris Reback. This is Working Capital Conversations. You've seen them nearly everywhere, from SoulCycle to Flywheel to Equinox and beyond, boutique fitness outfits that might seem at first glance to be engaging, if not mildly costly, places to get or stay in shape. And if that's how you see them, you're only half right. The part you're missing? Big fitness is also big business. In fact, health, wellness, and fitness is now estimated to be a $3.4 trillion global industry. And as you'd expect, that's attracted the full range of financial players, private equity, big banks, entrepreneurs, seasoned operators, and more. But while fitness has been around for decades, how did this industry experience exponential growth in just the last one? What are the trends, social, fashion, even status behind the movement? And are they sustainable? Jason Kelly is the person to ask. Jason is Bloomberg's New York bureau chief. His first book was The New Tycoons Inside the Trillion Dollar Private Equity Industry That Owns Everything. But his most recent one explores, as he puts it, an entire economy in apparel, gear, and entry fees that is formed around people's pursuit of wellness. His book, Sweat Equity, Inside the New Economy of Mind and Body. Jason, thanks for joining me. So in my research on this, I think the most impressive statistic, the one that made me think, wow, this guy really is an expert. You run a sub three hour and 10 minute marathon. How is that possible? That is true. That is true. It's great to be with you. Thank you. Um, yes. Well, I think uh, I think it's possible just because I am, am drawn to this area for a lot of the reasons that many are, which is, you know, we, we live in anxious times and I think we are looking for ways to sort of soothe our, soothe our bodies and our minds. And, you know, for me, at least I, I find a lot of that out on, out on the trails and, and going as fast as I can. Well, if skill in marathoning was fueled purely by anxiety, I'd be a world record holder. So <laughs> I, I think you probably get Now, did you run? Uh, I saw something in your tweets, but I couldn't quite tell. Did you run uh, the New York Marathon? You were you were tweeting a little bit about it. I, I did, and I tweeted a little bit about it. I am actually teed up uh, in just a few days to run the Philadelphia Marathon. So I am I am in that uh, for, for marathoners, that kind of dreaded period of the taper where you more or less stop running except for you know a few miles here and there and your body which has gotten so and your mind for that matter which have gotten so accustomed to sort of the release of long runs and intense runs is is, is, is um, kind of uh, physiologically chomping at the bit so I'm about 72 hours out or so and uh, and definitely feeling that uh, that jitteriness Okay, well, you've got uh, you've got a lot to be thinking about then, it, which leads maybe to I, I was kind of curious where for you was kind of the aha moment on this. I mean, you've covered obviously uh, you know private equity and, and and business. I mean, being you know New York uh, bureau chief, but also you know the book on private equity, and you've really covered the industry, and and private equity has played such a big role as you learn what as one learns from from your book in this industry. And yet, on the other hand, you know, I can almost imagine you kind of running around, you know, the, the reservoir in Central Park or, you know, someplace in London or, or wherever. One of the benefits of being a runner, I guess, is that uh, all you need to do is bring your, uh, you know, running shoes with you, you know, wherever you travel. W was it more, you know, private equity, you know, journalist, uh, you know, sees a new sector that's emerging? Or was it kind of guy who's into this, you know, emerging 
wing area, you know, sees everything that's going on and then says, wait a minute, you know, this connects with the other side of me, the, the business right. journalist side. Well, it, it really, it really was kind of an intersection of, of things and, and it was an ability to, or, or an opportunity, I should say, to, you know, kind of explore this nexus of, of interest. It, you know, one of the occupational hazards of being a business journalist is that you see everything um, through and through an economic lens. I mean, I'm, I'm, either a lot of fun or a nightmare, uh, depending on your perspective, to go to Disney World with, because all I think about is, you know, what are the, you know, how is this working as an economic engine? How do they run this as a business? And and so I think I never can quite turn that off. And what I saw from a runner's perspective was candidly how much money I was spending on a sport, which to your point, really shouldn't require much more than a pair of shoes. And yet what I started to see in, in my own habits was, that I was spending more money, not just on shoes, but on shorts and shirts and, you know, a headlamp so that I could run in the dark and, you know, living in, in New York or in the suburbs of New York, you know, special, they call them yak tracks to run in the snow. And, and most notably, I was seeing how much money I was continuing to spend just to get into a race. You know, I was seeing it go from you know, fifty, seventy-five dollars up into the you know hundreds of dollars to run the the world's biggest marathons, and so I started to to just sort of chip away at that, and I came across a couple of statistics. You know, one of which was around the average annual income of a participant in the New York City Marathon, which is upwards of one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars a year, and and climbing, and that made me stop and think really about how much money was really flowing toward this industry, and and then I just kept digging from there. Yeah, in in that aspect of it, which I I want to ask you about, the, the you know, in, in a, in, as we get to it, but the there's almost like it's like an affluent brand in in a way. Yeah. I mean, I was you know, you, you can think about whatever you know, Tiffany or 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 you know, Louis Vuitton, or you know, in in different areas, um, or in the retail area, the various um, affluent brands, and that becomes, I would think. Um, very attractive, right? Affluent brands, affluent, you know, sectors that attract affluent uh, audiences, um, those become very attractive sectors, don't they? Absolutely. And one of the things I also witnessed in my day-to-day life interacting with a lot of the guys on Wall Street was, you know, I remember very vividly this, this one lunch that I had almost 10 years ago now where I was just getting started on the private equity beat and I was meeting a, a consultant who you know was kind of showing me the the lay of the land about how private equity worked, and he noticed that I was wearing an you know an Iron Man Timex watch, and he said to me, "You're sitting there at lunch in a Midtown Manhattan restaurant." He said, "So what are you training for?" And you know the next thing we know, we've spent 25 minutes you know comparing race times and this race and you know this workout and all these different things, and and one of the things he said to me is he said, you know look around at the people you meet on this beat and you'll notice a lot of people are wearing that watch. They're not wearing a Rolex. They're wearing an Ironman Timex watch. And, and he's completely right. And so I would, I found myself asking the same question that he asked me when I would meet someone from KKR or Goldman Sachs or city. And I would say, you know, so what are you training for? What do you do? And I sort of found this, this pretty strong overlap between high achieving, high octane Wall Street men and women, and and a lot of men, candidly, because we are talking about Wall Street, and you know, and they were actively participating in long distance running races, triathlons, swimming, 
and and that really you know only encouraged this idea that there was something happening and and to your point it was happening at a very affluent level and it was happening around people who had a lot of disposable income to spend and if there's one thing that companies love to your exact point it's affluent people with a lot of disposable income to spend. That's a great that's a great consumer base. If you can find the the business, the product, the services for that consumer base, you you, you really want to hit them. So it, 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 is it almost the planets aligning in a way and and this gets to you know one of the things you know, as I was reading your words and and thinking about the ideas that that you put out there you know as you you point out it's not new exercise you know the baby boomers really you know this is and again I'm taking your research the baby boomers really started this um mm-hmm. to a great extent I, I forget what your exact line was but uh something the first first uh generation to to change smoking for uh exercise you, you had a be- the line was better to, to, than that. to sweat instead of smoke yeah, so yeah, I knew, yeah, you, about, yeah you had something yeah. that that resembled alliteration i knew it was a better written line than than what i was just <laughs> riffing and 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 so it's not like it's new but Things kind of came together, whether that was social, whether that was um, a, a, a growth of mindfulness around, you know, health and wellness. Maybe um, you know this anxiety or, or the the antidote to anxiety question. But I mean, I mean mm-hmm. I'm stating it, but I really mean it as a question. Is that what? Did that generate the fuel? Did that provide the the fuel for the growth of the industry? I mean, did did it you know require these planets aligning? It did. I mean, certainly the planets aligned, and 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 the the result, and and then I'll sort of go back to some of the causes. But the result, what what allows an economy to be created, is, in this case, is fitness moved from an activity to a lifestyle. And another way of thinking about that is that it moved from something we do to who we are. And and so when you when you sort of unpack that, what you realize is that sort of like me with my running shoes, you know, just sort of my baseline running shoes moving to a much more comprehensive, you know, sort of wardrobe and approach is that you started to see people not just say, I'm going for a run, but say, I'm a runner. And when you start to self-identify with that, and when you more importantly start to self-identify with a community of people who do that, you start to make much more deliberate choices about lots of different things in your life. And, you know, my wife teases me about the fact that, you know, about five or six years ago, I lost, you know, maybe 10 or 15 pounds and she chalked it up to, I started to eat steel cut oatmeal most mornings. You know, I was I sort of became the guy who, you know, would spend the 20 or 25 minutes most weekends after a run, you know, sort of going through that whole process. And, and, and she's right. I mean, that was the most visible sign of it, but in reality, it was a bit of a trigger for me to be much more conscious about what I was eating. And I was much more conscious about what I was eating because I wanted to run faster. And I felt better when I ran faster and I felt better when I ate better and I felt better when I got more sleep. And so when people started to think about it much more, pun intended, holistically, then they start to make all these different choices. And at that point, it just accelerates. And I think you you saw that happen through the 90s and 
certainly into the the late 90s and to the turn of the century. You know, and then you have these kind of exogenous events that happen, you know, not the least of which, and a number of people I interviewed for the book mentioned this to me, you have things like the terrorist attacks of 9-11. You have the, the Great Recession where it causes people to sort of pause and take stock, think about who they want to be, think about how they're living their lives, and, and health and wellness and fitness, you know, start to become a much bigger part of, of, of not just of the conversation, but of their daily life. Yeah, and it really is a lifestyle, as you, as you explained, and, and it is fascinating the way um, one can wear that. I mean, there's so much that, that we do in, in all aspects of our lives, from our, our kind of, um, you know, icon on Twitter to our, you know, the, the, the main picture on Facebook, on our, on our homepage on Facebook, to, you know, the Iron Man watch to the, you know, right. Lululemon, you know, uh, you know, pants, the yoga pants that, that, you know, people will wear. Um, it, well, and, and I do think that, you know, you, you mentioned something very important, which I want to make sure I don't get too far away from, which is technology. And, you know, social media plays a, a really interesting role here from, from my perspective. And it's kind of a two pronged role. The first is it's exactly what you alluded to, or you mentioned Facebook, Twitter, Instagram become these essentially personal advertisements for whatever we're doing physically. And so you have this sense, you know, you hear, you hear from the kids, the millennials talking about FOMO, the fear of missing out. And, and part of what drives people, I think, to participate in a lot of these um, exercise and, and sort of fitness activities is, you know, seeing their friends do it and seeing their relatives do it. And, you know, our Facebook feeds and our Twitter feeds are filled with, you know, all of these references, you know, both in text and, and in pictures of doing that. I think the other sort of interesting and maybe less obvious way that technology plays a role is, Many people are, and, and I say this from personal experience, are getting out on the road to run or to cycle or headed to a, a soul cycle class or, or a yoga class in part to escape that technology. You know, I mean, there's this, there's this reaction, I think, to the relatively superficial lives that we're leading um, by being in front of computers all the time, by being, you know, kind of an inch deep and a mile wide on lots of different things. And there's a desire to kind of reconnect um, with something that's a little more primal and, and to, to sort of reconnect with, with something that's a little more human. And, and, I, and I do think that that's one of the reasons we've seen running groups and cycling groups and really helps explain the, the explosion of boutique fitness. And so let's pick up on the digital um, to, I mean, there's so much in there that, that, that I would love to pick up on, including the, the primal. I mean, what's more primal and, and human than running and sweating, right? I mean, you, you, get, mm -hmm. you, know, you can imagine, you know, we're, we're not so removed from, uh, you know, caveman ancestors, right? I mean, that, that right. had to, you know, I guess they tweeted less about it, but they performed <laughs> the same activities. They just um, drew on cave, they cave walls. You know, it was a really primitive Twitter. Um, right. Cave, great cave draw drawings. Um, so, so technical and digital. So, the new economy on, on the business component of this, you know, yeah. most of the to, to you know exaggerate the point, most of the really attractive new businesses, and you call it new economy, you know, are highly digital. They scale really easily. You know, you build it once and or make it once and and multiply it multiple times. And and on the flip side of that, if I think about a soul cycle and, and a flywheel and places 
is that, you know, unfortunately, a disproportionate uh, amount of, you know, our family budget seems to go each month as well, um, though not mm-hmm. by not by me, unfortunately. Um, those are, I mean, they're kind of brick and mortar, right? I mean, the, you know, the, the soul yeah. cycles at the corner, flywheels at the corner. So why, I mean, I, I get it a little bit, and you've talked about the various kind of accoutrement and the, and the, the multiple ways in which you can kind of monetize the customer base and the audience base, but it's kind of a brick and mortar business with the technology aspect. So what, so first of all, correct me on all the stuff that I'm getting wrong there about the characterization of the business. And then two, if you would, you know, why is it attractive? Why, why does private equity like it? Why do bankers like it? You yeah. Know, why, why is that? Why is it so attractive? Well, the, the brick and mortar piece is exactly right. And I, and I think it largely goes back to, the very human nature of this business, you know, that people ultimately derive a lot of benefit and derive a lot of pleasure and a lot of satisfaction by being with other human beings. And I think that, you know, in this highly technical and technological age, we have at times lost sight of that. And I think that, you know, when you think about, and there's, there's some science to back this up, you know, when you when you look at the interactions on on Facebook, you know that you get these little you know when when you tweet or when you're mentioned or when something you post is liked, you know you get this little dopamine hit, but it's fleeting, and and so ultimately it's unsatisfying. And and I think that what SoulCycle and Flywheel and you know sort of the burgeoning yoga studios, you know, which again yoga has been around for literally thousands of years and yet we've really seen this you know dramatic rise in its popularity there is this there's this very deep desire to to kind of be around other human beings and and also to you know to sort of be instructed and and to be led i think i think people derive a lot of satisfaction for that which leads to sort of the the answer to the second question, which is why is it so attractive? Because why is it so attractive to to investors and, yeah. and to bankers? Yeah. The the reason is is that we have proven ourselves willing to pay an extraordinary amount of money for the privilege of gathering in that way. And so when you when you think about the price tag of and and you alluded to your family budget of paying $40 a session for SoulCycle or, you know, and, and in some other cases, you know, $20, $25 and, and in some cases less. But, you know, that's a really good business. And if you can demonstrate that those businesses are, uh, you know, demonstrate sort of a, in, in marketing terms, sort of a stickiness, you know, that people keep coming back and that they um, like being associated with it and that they identify with it and that they want to be part of this community. That is, that's incredibly powerful for investors. Now it is, and I spend a lot of time still talking to investors and bankers around this. And in fact, I was just in Los Angeles this earlier this week, um, participating in a, in a session with some investors and bankers on this very topic. It's, it's hard to invest in candidly because you get into the question of, well, what's a fad? And, you know, I, I, I was able to, uh, pick this up from a, um, 
from a good friend of mine who's a venture capitalist. And the, the, the metaphor I use in the book is, you know, what's a cupcake and what's a cheeseburger? And, and that's sort of an allusion to or a reference to the popularity of a, a cupcake shop on every corner, which sort of came and went, as you recall, over the last uh, five or six years as, a, as more of a fad. And then a cheeseburger joint, which seems to be forever. I think about PJ Clark's down the, uh, down the street from my office here, which has been around um, since the early 1900s. And so you start to think in, in more technical terms, you know, what, what's sort of cyclical and what's a, a sort of secular long-term trend. And, and there you think about running and yoga and, and probably cycling as well. And so that's one of the challenges for, for investors. But what they're drawn to is this consumer that we've been talking a lot about, this person who is willing to devote a lot of their disposable income to the, the – to the entry fee or to the to the fee to, to be a part of that class. And so if you can connect to, to something you said earlier, to reiterate something you said earlier, if you can connect to that consumer, that is a that's a highly attractive business that will only become more valuable. And how important is brand and, and how strong does loyalty work? And kind of how does loyalty work in, in this industry? Is it about the experience is it about talk to me about brand and, and loyalty and, and the importance there? Yeah, I think it's extremely important and it is hard. I mean, it's very difficult. I mean, this was something I was talking to, the, to these investors about earlier this week because, like with any brand, you know, you think about the kind of the great brands of our of our time. You think about Coca Cola. That is carbonated sugar water. You know, you think about Nike, you think about Starbucks, you know, none of, you know, all of these things are, you know, sort of infused with a specialness that is, that is hard to, to capture. You know, what I consistently hear from people is brands do best in this segment where they can provide an experience that that you really can't get anywhere else. And it's an experience that is based on a high level of instruction and a, a pretty consistent and devoted community. And so when you look at the success of just taking as an example, SoulCycle, SoulCycle relies heavily on very popular instructors who continually draw a kind of tribe of their own, um, but all under the auspices of, of SoulCycle. And so it, the, one of the challenges that that creates for folks is, for, for companies who are trying to do this is, how can you really scale a business like that? You know, SoulCycle so far has been able to, to do it, but when you look at something like a Pure Bar or an Orange Theory that has you know, expanded to hundreds of locations, that's one of the biggest challenges they have is to really maintain that quality of instruction because that to me is, is really the core that, uh, the, the, one of the core elements of having a, a persistent and successful brand. And, and so what's next for the industry and, and, I don't know if part of what's next is something, you know, one of the businesses that kind of is fascinating me personally, um, is Peloton. Um, and, mm -hmm. and I don't, I don't, we don't have one, but you know, I, I, you know, I look at that and, you know, you, you think, and we talk about how you can see how something scales, you know, in, yes. and you, you know, get the bike in someone's house and all of a sudden you can scale the best 
Soul Cycle or whoever, you know, um, instructor. Right. So, what 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 are the trends? What's next for this industry? And and is is a model like Peloton's um, something? You know, is, is that the the next step, or am I already behind? And I'm, you know, that's yesterday's step, and I'm missing the next one. No, I think you're very much onto something, and, and I'll tell you why. I and and this is this is a point I, I completely concede, which is as I was finishing up the research for the book, I learned a little bit about Peloton, and I spent some time looking into it. And candidly, I, I sort of dismissed it. I was like, nah, that doesn't really jive with what I'm seeing, which is people are you know coming out of the basement, as it were. They're you know they're leaving their treadmills and stationary bikes behind because they want to go to these boutique fitness places and you know be with other people what i what i think has ha- and 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 i will say you know plainly i got that wrong like i was dead wrong about that and i think what i missed was that technology plays a fascinating role in in the case of peloton because it essentially allows people to have some of the best of that community without leaving their house. Now, I don't think some, I, I think very few people only do Peloton. I think it's, it's a, it becomes one of the things that they do, but in an, in an age, and certainly you and I live lives like this, where you know, we try our very best to you know, get to a class or get in a run or something like that, but sometimes you get home late, you've got a half an hour, and you know what? Jumping on a jumping on your Peloton bike and then being able to sort of port yourself essentially into this community to interact with an instructor either, you know, live or to sort of jump on with other people, you know, virtually who can who can do a ride with you is very compelling. So I think what that speaks to is this broader trend of kind of melding in a way the the kind of physical aspects that we've been talking about and the best things that that digital can provide and so you you know i've heard about um ideas and and i think these are starting to roll out a little bit where you know instead of instead of your interaction being with a screen on a bike maybe it's a mirror where you have an instructor showing you how to do a certain yoga pose or some sort of high intensity workout and so you have that um that that at least sense of an interaction and again i think because it's a lifestyle people aren't just going to do one thing i'm a little bit unusual in the sense that I mostly run, you know, that's, that's sort of what I do, but I'm fortunate to live in an area uh, just north of New York city where I have beautiful running trails. And so I can be pretty satisfied with that. I think many people in more urban settings like to, you know, sort of pick and choose what they do and, you know, and they'll go to a soul cycle one day and then maybe they'll go to a bar class or a yoga class or, or they'll do lots of different things. And, you know, so having a mix of, uh, of things, some of which are kind of digitally enhanced or digitally driven, I, I think could very much be where we're going. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, certainly, you know, my, my, uh, um, user group and, and, uh, I guess focus group is, is pretty small, but, um, meaning, you know, members of the family, I'm not doing the research you're doing, but, uh, you know, my 15 year old daughter who, you know, loves to go to soul cycle, 
um, or Flywheel, uh, both of which are pretty local. Um, the new thing is, you know, she's jonesing for uh, a Peloton uh, bike uh, for the holidays, which, you know, right. I, I, you know, I don't, you know, I don't have a risk here. I don't think she listens to my conversations. I don't think that's in the cards, honey. Um, <laughs> but, but that, that would, and probably, you know, short of that, and you do talk about this. Um, and I think it was uh, um, the banker, wasn't it? Uh, Artie Kapoor, uh, the banker who, who kind of, I don't know if she discovered all of this, but but the story you tell about her and and her narrative, uh, you know, and what she went through at City, and then kind of discovering the business when she was at at Molas. But then she ended up asking for, uh, um, you know, I guess soul cycle uh, uh opportunities as gifts right from from people right so, instead of shoes instead yeah. of shoes yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah, yeah yeah well that uh yeah. that may be what ends up in uh you know on, on in the reback holiday uh grab bag um, <laughs> jason kelly is the uh, new york bureau chief of bloomberg and uh, his newest book sweat equity inside the new economy of mind and body jason thanks so much uh for your time i really appreciate it it was a lot of fun. Thank you. I'm Chris Reback. This is Working Capital Conversations. 